Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I'm a survivor. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to work harder. I'm a survivor. I'm Kev. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it works that time. It does. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Album Clash. Welcome to the second part in our early 90s indie acid house mashup clash. Last week, I took us through Happy Mondays, Pills and Thrills and Belly Aches from 1990. Kev, just remind everyone what you're going to take us through today. So I've got 1991's Primal Scream release, Screamadelica. I am tingling with anticipation about this one. Ooh, <laughs> tingling. <laughs> At least I think it's anticipation. It might just be the eczema. <laughs> but before that, do you have a choice for our video called The Radio Star? I do. And as we are in Britpop season, I decided to go for possibly the Britpoppiest of the Britpop videos. Oh, yes. So the choice this week was All Right by Supergrass. If you've not seen it, it is the band wearing T-shirts with their names on, having hijinks on bicycles, a bed on wheels at Port Merion in North Wales. Which is, as well as being a beautiful locale, highly recommend anyone visits Port Merion, it is where the cult 60s TV show The Prisoner was filmed. Yeah, I was slightly disappointed not to see a giant bubble um, <laughs> coming after the band. The, the, it did, but Danny Goffey punctured it with a needle, so he won <laughs> <laughs> interestingly in relation to to the video i hope this is what i think you're gonna, gonna say you know exactly what i'm gonna say <laughs> so steven spielberg approached the band and proposed that they work on a tv uh, series in the style of the monkeys <laughs> the band rejected this to record their great second album um, in it for the money but I genuinely would have wanted to see that. Right. Firstly, I think they made the right choice because In It For The Money is fucking phenomenal piece of work. I'd love us to go through that at some point on the show. So let's get that out of the way. But yeah, I remember that story from the time and I remember being all kinds of excited about it and I'm still gutted it never happened. That would have been fucking brilliant. I mean, they turned on Spielberg. A Spielberg-helmed, supergrass, monkey-style TV show. What's not to like? That's <laughs> fucking nuts. So I'm guessing you remember the video. I do remember the video. I have to say, All Right is not my favourite Supergrass song by any stretch. It's not even my favourite song on the album. Well, no, because that's caught by the fuzz. Yes. It became very ubiquitous, the video and the song, mm -hmm. which is possibly feeding into it. It's a really fun video. It is classic Supergrass. I have to say, watching it back for this, it was nice to see it. Yeah. Um, and particularly in its full version, because... I suppose my primary memory of it was clips of it whilst advertising a Shine album or the greatest album in the world ever <laughs> um, or any any number of indie compilation albums that came out at the time. Can we just say some of those compilation albums were fucking good, though? Yeah, I mean, the first couple of Shine ones were decent and the first um, best album in the world ever was it was good. Like, yeah. it, had to, it had some good stuff on it. Yeah, I know what you mean, though. And it was good to see the whole video. It was, 
it was like snuggling up to a, a warm blanket when you've got home after a long trip away. Yeah, it's pure Britpop. Yeah, it is pure Britpop. Lots and lots of fun. And as we said about Step On last week, it's one of those moments from the mid-90s that is evocative and definitive of that entire time and that entire culture, really. So surely people can't fail to have seen that video. But if you haven't, we're going to tweet the link out, so take the opportunity to take a look. And look at um, Gaz Coombe's massive pork chops. Magnificent sideburns. I mean, they're great. They are so good. They are. even. So I certainly envied them when I was 14, because ain't no way I was growing sideburns like that when I was 14. And even now at the age of 40, nah, nowhere near. I mean, I could I could shave my beard and like try and come close to him, but yeah, I'm not I'm not getting anywhere near that. Kev, you ginger, it ain't happening. <laughs> <laughs> you just end up looking like Hans Klopek from the Burbs. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad we've got our first Burbs reference in here. I love the Burbs. I think it's really good film. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> Okay, shall we um, move on and start talking about Screamadella? <sighs> Fine, go on. <laughs> Take us through the background. Okay, so the album was released on the 23rd of September, 91, on Creation Records. And it was the third album by the band, and that's important because it followed up on two really disappointing albums which had been poorly reviewed and had sold poorly as well. So Bobby Gillespie um, was the drummer in Jesus and the Mary Chain. And around sort of 86, 87, Jesus and the Mary, he was, he was also in Primal Scream at the time, or certainly the, the start of it anyway. And he was asked to make a decision on which band, like, are you in Jesus and the Mary Chain or are you in Primal Scream? And he decided to go with Primal Scream. And they, they'd got their record deal, they'd released their first two albums, and they had done shite. And the band were flapping about. So Bobby Gillespie himself says... We were going nowhere in 89. We weren't selling any records and nobody thought we were going to make it. And, you know, like the the first two albums, there's not really a huge amount to talk about there. No, (laughs) because they weren't very good. (laughs) No. So the first album was called Sonic Flower Groove in 87, as you said. Then in 89, they released their eponymously titled second album, Primal Scream. (laughs) <laughs> the only thing I'm going to say about that one is that the Melody Maker review of that described it as primal tap. <laughs> At least it wasn't shit sandwich. That's exactly what I've written. It's their very own <laughs> shit sandwich review. <laughs> Go and watch Spinal Tap. It's fucking great. It, it's one of the best films ever. So Alan McGee, the creation boss who we've spoken about before, uh, he later admitted that Primal Scream media-wise were a fucking joke. Bobby Gillespie himself, although, as you said, they were going nowhere, he has claimed since, so in an article in Louder Sounds in 2018, he claimed that he'd never lost faith. So he said, we never sold a lot of records, but we toured that album all over Europe. We always believed we were fucking great. I know it sounds really arrogant now, but when it did happen for us with Screamadelica, we weren't surprised. I mean, again... As unreliable narrators go, Bobby Gillespie slightly behind Alan McGee and Noel Gallagher. But yeah, <laughs> Bobby Gillespie very much in well, very much like Alan McGee and Noel Gallagher, and um, certainly likes to furnish his own reputation. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Indeed, very delicately. <laughs> Indeed. So Alan McGee is very important to this story. So Alan McGee gets banged into the acid house scene 
and introduces the band to the acid house scene and gave Bobby Gillespie his first day. And certainly in interviews that I've read, Bobby Gillespie and the band themselves didn't necessarily get the, the scene straight away. However, as they began to consume more ecstasy, they became much more enthused by the scene. We'll put it that way. <laughs> you are performing some remarkable linguistic gymnastics today, Kevin. Bravo. I can tell you've been watching the Olympics. <laughs> The key moment, really, in the genesis of Screamadelica is a meeting with Andrew Weatherall, the DJ, at a rave in Brighton. So Alan McGee said, it was one of those great nights. At the end of the rave at 11 in the morning, uh, Weatherall <laughs> came over and introduced himself. So that, And Weatherall had, had had quite a long sort of relationship with the band, so he had um, reviewed them under a pseudonym. Audrey Witherspoon. Indeed. And had been quite favourable towards them, particularly. And they, that was quite important, considering how critically reviled they were at this point. Yes. May I read a quote from Andrew Weatherall? Certainly. So this is from a, an interview he gave to The Enemy in 2011. He said, before I met Primal Scream in 1989, I wasn't a massive fan. I'd seen them skulking around in corners of clubs. My manager and Creation Records press officer, Jeff Barrett, had given me a copy of their second album. He couldn't get any press on it or anything. Everybody hated it. I took it away, and I think I was the only person in the world that actually liked it. It was Andrew Innes, Primal Scream's guitarist, who first suggested I do a remix for them. It was in a chill-out lounge at a club called Spectrum with Alex Patterson from The Orb DJing. I wasn't daunted by the idea. I didn't know how to program drum machines, but I knew what worked on the dance floor. Oh boy, he fucking did. Oh, yes. So the track that he was given, it was a copy of, of the song, as Tim says, from the second album, I'm Losing More Than I'll Ever Have. And they gave it to him, and it was for him to remix and have a go at it. And the first attempt, they rejected. They said, you're too reverential to the... Um, to the original source material. So he went away and he added a drum loop from an Italian bootleg of Edie Brickle's What I Am, a sample of Gillespie singing a line from Robert Johnson's Terraplane Blues, and the famous sample from uh, the Peter Fonda B movie, The Wild Angels. Mm. This track became loaded and it was the band's first um, hit single, reached number 16 on the UK singles chart and absolutely revolutionised British music and the fortunes of Primal Scream. Absolutely. It was because of this and the success of Loaded that this way of working where they would come up with a song and then hand it over to the producers, which was largely Andrew Weatherall, but you know the, the Orb producer track, Jimmy Miller also has production duties. They would hand over the track to the producer and say, right, go ahead and do what you're going to do with it. And so the album that followed, it was it was largely piecemeal recorded, but it was the bulk was recorded over six weeks in the summer of 91 at Jam Studios in London. Like Weatherall had never produced in a studio before. And I think that's that was key to it as well, that he wasn't a traditional music producer. He was a DJ. Because he, yeah, he was a DJ. And he came... He, came at it with a completely different way of working and a different angle. And that's why the album sounds like it does. So Gillespie says, 
it was just his natural talent to make this music and structure and arrange music in a way that we'd never heard before because it wasn't it wasn't a traditional rock and roll production we're not talking george martin here we're talking someone who has taken the the song cut it up and and absolutely turned it into something else so i know we i don't want to like absolutely go into loaded as much as but there's only seven seconds of the original song that actually make its way into the final version. Yes, I agree with everything you've just said. I would like to pick you up on what you said about picking George Martin. It's because I said George Martin, wasn't it? Because knew- you were literally talking about breaking songs down and reconstructing them into something else. And I know I've said this before. I'm going to mention it again on today's show. Fucking Tomorrow Never Knows, mate, is the greatest piece of music ever put to record. That is exactly what that song is. So pick a different producer, please. Yeah, I, I know. Like as soon as I said George Martin, it's because I was thinking I was thinking like the early Beatles, like a very sort of traditional mm-hmm. producer relationship. Yes, George Martin it was was an innovator and did amazing things. So <laughs> I I recognise my error in invoking him. Um, so do you have anything more to that you want to say about the recording or the production of the album? I do not. Okay. We've got to talk about the artwork because it's iconic. It is. Um, So it was painted by Creation's in-house artist, Paul Cannell, and in the most Creation Records fucking way. It was inspired by a damp water spot he'd seen in the Creation Records Records office's ceiling after he'd taken LSD. And according to Cannell, in an interview with The Daily Record in 2010, to commemorate the fact that the artwork had been turned into a postage stamp. He said that Bobby Gillespie wanted the cover shop to be a picture of the band sitting with a sexy model. But I said, no one will buy it. Thankfully, his view prevailed. Yeah. I I mean, it's iconic. It's been on a fucking stamp. (laughs) You know, anyone who knows British music, as soon as you see that image, it's Screamadelica. Exactly. It, It just, you know. So behind me, and I know Kev can't see it now, but I'm going to hang on my camera. There you go. There it is. Behind me is a canvas print of uh, some of the most iconic album covers of all time. Sitting on the top row is Screamadelica. It is iconic. It's a great image. When you see that, you think Screamadelica. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's so well known. And amazing that it came, it came about... From a damp patch. From a damp patch that someone was tripping their tits <laughs> off looking at. I mean... That's not the last time we're going to be talking about tripping your tits off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, great stuff. Okay, so how did you first become acquainted with the album? Uh, So again, I I keep repeating myself on these things. It's fairly similar to last week, to be honest. I, I remember moving on up being a big thing. I remember Loaded being released, but I was too young at that time to get into albums, you know. So it was when Vanishing Point came out in 97, which I'm a big fan of. That is what got me into Primal Scream. And that's when I went back and listened to Screamadelica and I realized what I've been missing. So sorry, as a spoiler alert, guys, I am a big fucking fan of this album. Absolutely the same for me, really. I'd heard Moving On Up, I'd heard Loaded as I was growing up during the 90s. But yeah, it was Vanishing Point was my gateway into Primal Scream. Like Rocks was like, I really liked Rocks when it came out. That makes one of us when hate that song. Well, if you'd said Jailbird, different story. Rocks, hate it. No, Rocks, like, so I really liked Rocks when it came out. 
but that's because it's not a really a primal scream song. It's a pastiche of a stone song, really. So before we move on, I want us to do give out, but don't give up at some point on this show. Cause there's a lot to talk about from that album. But anyway, sorry, back to you. But generally vanishing point was my way in. And I went back and when I, when I first came across uh, Screamadelica, I was like, fucking hell. Wow. Mm-hmm. So yes, spoiler alert. We are going to uh, rhapsodize about this. Yeah. <laughs> but that's why you're here. That's why you listen to the show, isn't it guys? Yeah. If you, I mean, like, come on, if, if you're not a fan of either of these albums, then you're not really going to want to listen to us talking shite about it for like an hour and 20 minutes or however long we're going to do on this one. Exactly. Um, but yeah, there we go. So shall we get into it then? Let's. Okay. So we open with an absolute fucking rammer, a stone cold fucking classic. It's moving on up. Um, fucking hell. The... <laughs> so can I, we'll do the facts in a bit. First thing I'm going to say, is it possible to go wrong with a gospel choir? I mean, I can't, they elevate everything. They do. The gospel vocals are so important to the song. Yes. They they take what's a... To be fair, the, the song itself, so it was produced by Jimmy Miller, who um, had produced lots of sort of classic bands in the 60s and 70s, and the band, were, the band really wanted him to come in and produce. So he's very famous for working with the Stones, ironically, given... Yeah. Uh, so he produced... He certainly produced Beggar's Banquet, didn't he, in other Stones mm-hmm. albums? Yeah. And... It, it's one of the it's one of the funny things about moving on up. It's a fucking belting song. You could argue it's possibly shouldn't be on this album because it's the most traditional style song that's on the album. Is it? It's one of the two. Yeah. But yeah, as always, I'm full of quotes. So two from Bobby Gillespie. So firstly, on to address your point directly. One person who said it shouldn't be on the album in its eventual guise was Andrew Weatherall. Bobby Gillespie, in an interview with The Guardian in 2014, said Weatherall made some disparaging remark about it, but we didn't want a dance mix. Then in an interview with Louder Sound in 2018, he said the one guy in the world I wanted to mix us was Jimmy Miller. But it was hard to find because within the music industry, it was seen as a burnout. But I went up to Eden Studios and he mixed Moving On Up for us there, and it was incredible. On the song, there's this mad percussion thing going on, and it's Jimmy playing two Coca-Cola bottles. Um, it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely adore this song and always have. The the key the keyboards in it are are really important, but the the gospel vocals just bring it to a different level. It starts strong. It's a fucking strong start. Oh god, it is. So apparently. Again, this is according to Bobby Gillespie, told the enemy. It started out as quite a slow gospel style song. And it was only when Andrew Innes came up with that syncopated guitar part, which opens the track, mm-hmm. that they hit on the euphoric song it, it ended up becoming. I mean, it's about taking E. <laughs> I mean, I suppose we haven't we haven't really covered this when we talked about the album in general, is that there is a a belief that the album is structured to mirror the experience of taking of taking an E. That's because it is. <laughs> it, it is. Just own it. As I, I've said this before, just fucking own it. It is. So the the start of the album starts with that initial hit of euphoria as the 
as the E starts to work its way into into your system. I was blind. Now I can see you made a believer out of me. I mean, you could think of those as gospel lyrics, but given what we're going to talk about lyrically and musically, it's about, it's about as you said, it's the hit of taking an E. It's what it is. Just own it. Fine. I, and we're speaking 30 years later, almost exactly 30 years later, actually. So we have the benefit of society mellowing to some extent. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine in 1991, if they'd come out and said, yeah, it's all about taking E, that it would have caused some controversy. I mean, the shame in Ebenezer Good. Although there is a song on here, which is basically the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> the, the gospel vocals, as we said, the acoustic guitar part, the rhythm, the bongos, the slide guitar solo. That's it. It's the cherry on top of the cake. Love it. Yeah. It's, I, I love the way you've described it like a Sunday um, because mm. it is. Well, I said cake actually, but Sunday is better. So fair play. Okay. So the, the constituent parts are important and all very nice, but stick them all together and you've got a fucking amazing pudding. <laughs> I, that's not the last time we're going to talk about constituent parts on this album either. Or puddings. <laughs> Just, I dare, I dare anyone to stick this song on and get to the end without clapping along. I fucking dare you. Go on, because you ain't going to do it. Or just, like, not not even, like, not even necessarily clapping along, but not feel uplifted by it. Mm-hmm. By that end, that ending, like, you can't help but feel up. Yep, quite so. Lovely stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely way to start an album. Okay, so then we move on to Slip Inside This House. So it's a cover of a song by a... Um, a 60s band, uh, the 13th Floor Elevators, a, a band that I do have some fondness for, I have to say. So I'm going to make an admission here. I've just said about how much I love this album and how many times I've listened to it until we started researching this clash. I had no idea this was a cover version. Well, yeah, like I, I have to admit that I have some fondness for the 13th Floor Elevators. I wouldn't dream of saying that I am their biggest fan or anything. So I couldn't honestly say that I knew that this was a cover. But like I, I then subsequently realised, oh yeah, I have actually heard the original. I was going to say, so I listened to the original this week. It sounds very different, obviously. Yeah. It's a very psychedelic 60s sound. Yeah, you, you can see why I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's very much in my wheelhouse. <laughs> so, on that, the Guardian described this song, well, this version, as drawing an explicit link between acid rock and acid house, which is a lovely way of putting it. Well, yeah, and the little change to the chorus. So, <laughs> I don't know what you mean. I mean, I mean, we talked about subtlety with Sean Ryder before, so slip inside this house comes to trip inside this house. (laughs) No, it just means that it means he's so eager to get inside that he trips over the threshold. That's what it means, Kev. I mean, so you can, you didn't see it, and obviously he doesn't produce the first song. You don't see Weatherall's influence. You do now. Oh my God, yes. I mean, that bass is fucking filth. It is, isn't it? It is filthy. It's filthy. This has also got Tomorrow Never Knows all over it with that sitar part, that synthesized sitar part. So it will come as no surprise to anyone. I fucking love this tune. It's great. It is really good. And not sung by Bobby Gillespie. No. It's Robert Young, uh, the guitarist, is the lead vocalist on this. 
doing a phenomenal Bobby Gillespie impression, by the way. I mean, I mean, he does just sound like Bobby Gillespie. Like, so are you, I'm sure you've got noted down why Bobby Gillespie didn't sing this. Um, I do not actually, because he was absolutely wankered. <laughs> he was too drunk to sing it. I mean, we have other stories of this. <laughs> <laughs> Of all the chemical things that occur during the uh, recording sessions, we'll put it. Yeah, Bobby Gillespie was too pissed to sing this. Uh, so, yeah, didn't. So, as usual, I've done my whosample.com thing. <laughs> Two samples on this. Firstly, as so many songs do, this has a drum sample of the classic Winston's tune, Amen Brother. It also has a vocal sample from Sly and the Family Stone's Sex Machine. Which is a fucking great song. Well, they both are. Well, yeah. Uh, this is all kinds of good. Like, like, like. Yeah, it's a it's a strong, it's a strong like from me. People are gonna get really bored, by the way, because I'm gonna struggle to say anything negative. <laughs> Spoiler alert, sorry. So I think we should probably move on to Don't Fight It, Feel It, which, I mean, we've already talked about the influence of ecstasy on this album and the the title of this song, Don't Fight It, Just Feel It. And and the chorus line. Yeah. Gonna get in high till the day I die. (laughs) So this features vocals by Manchester singer Denise Johnson. The much lamented and lost um, Denise Johnson. Yeah, very recently passed away, wasn't she? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was released as a single on the 24th of August, 91, but it only reached number 41 in the UK. But it was still a massive hit on the club scene. It, it was huge. And you could, you can hear the the influence of rave culture with throughout this song. The whistles at the start! Yeah, you know. It, this, <laughs> it's this great! Is, this is a pure rave tune. I fucking adore this. So whether all have clearly learned to program drum machines, because Christ, the drum beats in this are so acid house. As of the sort of tweaking bass lines on the 303. It, oh. Yeah, it, it, it's great. I mean, and like the mad thing that I've, <laughs> that I've read, uh, and again, Bobby Gillespie is never the, um, the most reliable narrator, but he said that the inspiration for writing this song came about when they were off their heads after going for a night out, came back, gurning their faces off, um, and were listening to Northern Soul. And this was their attempt to write a, essentially a rave Northern Soul tune. Hmm. Okay, fine. Certainly got the rave part, right? So I can see the concept. I can see the the idea. The beat is very stomp along, yeah. which obviously a lot of Northern Soul is as well. So yeah, okay, okay. To me, this just sums up everything I love about this album. So I, it was a, so the time I got into this album was around about the time, 96, 97, where I'd started listening to a lot more electronic music. And so when I then heard this, oh, God. <sighs> it's brilliant. It, I, I'm sorry, I'm not saying any words. It's glorious. Uh, Apparently, Alan McGee did not want this to be released as a single because there is not a recognisable lead vocal on it. I mean, you literally released Loaded, Alan, which (laughs) has no lead vocal on it at all. So, I don't know. Just maybe lay off the drugs a bit. Alan McGee should never have run a business. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's what what we do have to say about this. And and he should never have been allowed to speak publicly either. (laughs) 
I have nothing more to say about this song. It's very good. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> this is one of the worst shows we've ever done, by the way, because we've got nothing bad to say. Yeah, well, you know, we might, we might. I'm just having a look at me notes and seeing if there's um, anything that I might criticise. You know, we'll we'll see. Okay, we'll move on to the next song, which is Higher Than the Sun. So the song itself was produced by The Orb, and you can tell. Oh, yeah. So I noted down that I felt it was a really good pace change in, within the album. <laughs> and I'm sure you've probably put the same thing based on your laughter. Yeah. <laughs> After the first three tracks, it's nice to come down and relax a little bit. <laughs> And it does have that kind of slightly industrial sound as well to it, which I think works works well. So uh, I'll come on to the sound in a minute. In terms of the, the pace change, I think this is perhaps the best paced album we've reviewed so far. And that's why when you were saying it's been alleged that it's it's structured to be like the up and down of, a, of, of an ecstasy mm-hmm. hit, it, it is. That's exactly what it is, and it's paced phenomenally well as a result. It's, uh, yeah, uh, uh, so that's the first thing I want to say. In terms of the sound, I mean, as you said, the ambient sounds throughout, you can absolutely tell it's the orb. It's got Alex Patterson all over it, but it's the bass line that makes it. It's the bass line. Yeah. Oh, God. It's just, this is years ahead of its time. It is, it, you know, it's it's huge. So it was released as a single in June 1991. Only got to number 40. Alan McGee apparently said to the band, it won't be a hit, but you've got to release it. It's a fucking statement. It is a fucking statement. Put yourself in 1991. You've heard nothing like this ever. Even so Little Fluffy Cows had obviously been a hit from the orb by this time. But even that sounds nothing like this. This is so meticulously arranged yeah it's just wonderful it's got a sinister element to it that puts me in mind of some of the things that massive attack would go on to do later in the decade it's got as i said the the ambient classic orb sound it's just fucking phenomenal yeah it's i mean and and i'm glad that you 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 raised that that it's got that slight edge to it Mm. and this song this song particularly and if you were having a some kind of chemical experience, there is that feeling of things slightly being on edge, mm-hmm. um, that you're enjoying yourself, but could turn, don't know. And it's a perfect kind of accompaniment to the chemical journey that many people, when they first listened to this album, were on. So you've heard. <laughs> so I've heard. We're saying all that. There is someone that's denied this is uh, about taking drugs. And that will be the person that wrote the song, Bobby Gillespie. So he told the enemy, it's me just saying how I feel. It's a spiritual song. It's me disconnecting myself from everything, being totally in touch with myself. Yes, I'm sure it is. And that's why he wrote lyrics such as, hallucinogens can open me or untie me. I drift in inner space. Free of time, I find a higher state of grade in my mind. That speaks to me exactly about just being totally in touch with yourself and about nothing else. Just fucking own it. Just say what it's about. Unreliable narrator. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. I don't care what he says. It's a magnificent piece of music and I adore it. It's great. Okay, let's move on to Inner Flight. 
So an instrumental, and it's a good way to break up the sound of the album. Alan McGee, when again talking about the recording, said that, <laughs> that Martin Duffy, the keyboardist, was um, on LSD at the time and basically was tripping during the recording of this, saying that that he was pissing on the ceiling. I think was the, <laughs> was the phrase. Oh, thanks Twitter. <laughs> That's the clip. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hadn't read that quote. That's fucking magnificent. Yeah. <laughs> the only the only thing I would say is that maybe could be a little shorter, but that's that's being maybe a bit critical. I mean, the album's only just over an hour long, so oh, being very picky there. Yeah, and like I'm maybe a little overcritical, as I say. Right, so one thing we didn't talk about when going through the background to the album, and this is something I very briefly alluded to a few weeks ago, Pet Sounds is one of the albums that inspired Screamer Delica. Bobby Gillespie's vocal harmonies throughout this are very Beach Boys. I mean, and it's one of the the albums that Weatherall and Bobby Gillespie bonded over. They had a mutual admiration, respect for for Pet Sounds, amongst other other artists as well. That's because it's fucking brilliant. As we said um, a few weeks ago. Yes, indeed. I think this is a nice follow-on from Higher Than The Sun. It relaxes me that little bit more and actually prepares me nicely for the two tracks that are about to come. Oh God, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, again, we, we've talked about album craft and how important it is to, to allow space in an album and i think the the instrumental works well because it gives you that little break it's a lovely little break to kind of allow you to absorb what's come before allow the sounds to kind of wash over you and it's it's a nice place you're in and you're about to to be uplifted again not just yet we're not because i've got to do my samples <laughs> three things to talk about all of which quite key to the song. So the siren sound that bookends this track is a sample from the Brian Eno track, The Great Pretender. The drums are a sample from Dr. John's Gree Gree Gumbo Ya Ya. Anything that brings Dr. John in is always a good and, thing. And what an eclectic pair of samples, by the way. Let's blend Eno with Dr. John. Okay. Dr. John, yeah. <laughs> and towards the end, there's a a vocal sample, which, and I apologize, it almost sounds like an owl hooting. It's not an owl hooting. It is a sample from Woe Buck by C.B. Cook, a 30s acapella blues recording. Didn't know that until I listened to that track today, in fact, when researching this. Uh And uh, it's a really, really moving piece of music, actually. It's not a piece of music that I've ever heard before. And some, you know, that I have a a great love of early blues as well. So it's it's something that I will definitely check out. If you like the soundtrack to Oh Brother Where Art Thou by the Coen Brothers, which I know you do. Yeah, I do. Give it a listen. Yes, I certainly will. Okay, we move on to another absolute fucking rammer. Come together. So the song, it's a, well, the UK version of the song contains a sample of Jesse Jackson from the 1972 Watts Stacks gig um, in LA. And a link back to a previous clash because the same speech from the same festival was also sampled by Public Enemy on Rebel Without a Pause. Indeed it is. 
So apparently the US version of the song has a sample instead from Sex, Lies and Videotape Mm -hmm. and um, also contains the riff from um, the great Elvis song, Suspicious Minds. This is a absolutely joyous, wondrous, uplifting, spiritual way to bring the bring the listener up after the previous two songs. So for the version that we listen to, we listen to the the original UK version. Uh the UK album version. So my apologies. In August 1990, this was released as a single. So this is still a year before the album comes out. It charted at 26 in the UK, at 18, sorry, at 13 on the alternative chart in the US. But the single version, so it was mixed by uh, Terry Farley, wasn't produced by by Weatherall. It's completely different. It's, it is a pop song. Yeah. It is completely different. So that is the original. And when Andrew Weatherall remixed it for the album, Bobby Gillespie was quite pissed off because his vocal had been taken out completely. The, 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 the original song that was released has a Gillespie vocal throughout. Mm-hmm. And according to David Kavanagh in his History of Creation Records, he claimed that Bobby Gillespie said that after his vocals had been removed, well, there's no point in me being in the fucking band then. So if you listen to the single version, it's worlds apart from what's on the album. And at least personally speaking, it's nowhere fucking near as good as what ends up on the album. No, not at all. The the Weatherall version, the the Jesse Jackson sample, it, it just elevates you. It it takes you to a place, and that kind of oratory and cadence, the Jesse Jackson, it was incredible. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and that's that's what makes this song. Is it just lifts you up? And as we said, that this album is akin to the experience of having a having an ecstasy high. This is your second. Your second wave, your second come up. So we've heard, <laughs> and it's that oratory lifts lifts you up and brings brings you along with the band and the backing vocals and everything like that. It all works so well, and it, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. It is indeed. I have described it as an epic gospel infused funk odyssey. What I can say. In terms of the recording of this, didn't start well. So Bobby Gillespie, again, we have to take it with a pinch of salt. So I quote, the drummer turned up with some fucking horse tranquilizer drug that Keith Moon OD'd on. We all took it and collapsed. I'm staying quiet. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the recording session did not start well. No, indeed. (laughs) Uh, God, so you... You mentioned when going through moving on up about constituent parts coming together to make something. And okay, mm-hmm. ironically given the song title, pardon the pun, but that's exactly what you've got here. And not only that, but you've actually got Andrew Weatherall building each part in and then taking them each out again over the course of just 10 minutes of wonderful, rapturous, uplifting, sonic paradise. Joy. I, yeah, yeah, it's just fucking glorious. The the hand claps, the incessant bass drum. Oh yeah, lovely, lovely stuff. And you're midway through the album, and you've got a song that's ten minutes long. I don't care. I want more. No, it's it's great, and 
as I say, it uplifts mm-hmm. you. It's it, it's absolutely that. I have one more thing to say. Okay, go on. In 2013, it was remixed by Daniel Avery, someone else of whom I'm a big fan, and used as the theme tune to BT Sports coverage of the Premier League. Okay. I, I mean, I remember hearing it on their coverage, but it was just a sample. Like, But there you go. Okay. Yep. All right, go on. So we move on to the next song and we have, we've talked a lot about it because it is what kind of brought about Andrew Weatherall's involvement in the album. So it's loaded. And so I've got a little story about, so Andrew Weatherall, as we, as we said earlier, goes away and messes about with this song, leaves only sort of seven seconds from the original within it and cuts in all these different disparate elements and he plays the song for the first time during his set at the London Club Subterranea in uh, 1990. After the set, Weatherall calls up Gillespie at his home in Brighton at 4am to say, fucking hell, man, everyone's going mental for the record. <laughs> Brilliant. And the song itself, and I know that you, you particularly enjoy re- referencing the samples. So it has the vocal samples from the emotions, I Don't Want to Lose Your Love. And that absolutely, you know, elevates the song. It's described by Music Magazine as, and I I love this quote, and that's why I I wanted to bring it up now. It's unquestionably the finest indie dance record ever. Something akin to sympathy for the devil for the E generation. Brilliant. I read that quote too. It is perfectly put. Brilliant. Yeah. I have very little else to say from what you've just said. This is again, I'm going to repeat myself from Come Together. The constituent parts that build in, that break down in the middle, and then that come back again. It's just the brass, the emotion sample, as you said, makes makes this tune. It, everything comes together to make something that is gloriously uplifting. At the same time, funky, something that you can't help but dance to. Andrew Weatherall is a fucking genius. Well, sadly, was because he passed away last yeah. year Andrew Weatherall was a fucking genius I mean how he came up with this is just it's <sighs> alchemy pure mm-hmm. alchemy like he has created a thing of the purest green <laughs> <laughs> oh a nice black one for the black Adder fans there yeah <laughs> it's uh, you know it's it's a wondrous wondrous piece of work it's it still sounds amazing every time I hear it. Yeah. Like, I will never, ever tire of Loaded. Nor will I. So it's it was used on the soundtrack to, and, well, the, the Peter Fonda speech quoted in the Edgar Wright conclusion to the Cornetto trilogy, The World's End, a film I'm a big fan of. And when... Simon Pegg's character quotes those lyrics towards the end. It's obviously a very knowing wink, wink, but it's great. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's it's a fantastic piece of work, and there's not really a huge amount we can say about it because it's a fucking classic. It is, yeah, classic is right. Okay, so let's move on to the next song on the album, which is "Damaged," and this the song itself. So what I noted down is that initially particularly after the two songs that have gone before, it feels like a bit of a, it feels like a bit of a come down. But once you allow it to, to start winding its way into you, it's such a beautifully simple song. 
and Bobby Gillespie sings it so well and it's it's so well put together and it's it has such a delicate touch to it. It's a really beautiful song that disarms you after the euphoria of the previous two songs. You it it feels like you've kind of come down, but it isn't. It's it gets you in a different way, and that's the beauty of it. Uh, y- yes, beauty is right. Disarming. I-, I understand where you're coming from. I think you need a bit of a come down after what you've just experienced, particularly if you are on the knee, allegedly. So I've heard <laughs> that you can't go at that pace forever. So this is the I fucking love you hugging everyone <laughs> phase, anyway. So there's another one produced by Jimmy Miller. And you said about moving on up that you felt that was the most sort of classic rock number on the album. I'd suggest this is more so. It's very Eagles, this, to me. And I know you don't like the Eagles. I do. So it's a definite call forward to what you're going to hear, particularly on Cry Myself Blind in three years' Mm -hmm. time on Give Out But Don't Give Up. You're right about the way Gillespie sings it. The lyrics themselves are lovely. It's a nice love song, but it's the guitar solo that elevates this song to something else. It's a magnificent guitar solo. It's simple, but it's when it comes in the middle of the song and then when it's repeated at the end, underneath the outro, the vocal outro, stoned in love with you. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. I am a big fan of Damaged. It may not fit perfectly with the musical style of what we've been hearing over the last five or six tracks, but I don't care. It's a lovely song. I actually disagree with you. I don't think that it doesn't fit. I think it's, as you say, that you've had absolute euphoria for the previous two songs. And this is a this is the start of bringing the listener into land, bringing them down from their the high of their their trip, if you want. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely right. And it it feeds beautifully into the next song as well. Yes, it does. I mean, I wonder what this song might be about. <laughs> so the next song is I'm Coming Down. <laughs> so the, the song itself features a sample from the Vim Vendors um, film Paris, Texas, um, which also the Orb used in two of their songs as well. Yeah, it's Natasha Kinski where she says, yep, I know that feeling. So yeah, what's this song about? I'm Coming Down. I've been so high, I never wanted to come down. I've been so lost, I never wanted to be found. I'm all hung over with bad dreams. I stumble into messy scenes. Hmm. <laughs> subtle. I mean, not at all. But when's Bobby Gillespie <laughs> ever been subtle about anything? Well, indeed. It's a counterpoint to Higher Than The Sun. Higher Than The Sun is when you're in that, well, as Josh Wink would go on to say, high state of consciousness. In- I did not expect us to uh, reference Josh Wing here. Oh, come on. That's a fucking banger. Absolute stone cold hey, rammer. No, no, I didn't say I didn't say it was a bad song. It's like I said, I did not expect it to be referenced. Fair enough. It's a counterpoint to Higher Than The Sun. This is the come down. I really like the saxophone freak out because it puts you in mind of a fairly messy come down. Again, so I've heard. <laughs> I like it. It's not as good as some of the other songs we've heard, but it's in the right place in the album. It's still got a lot I can get into. Right from the start, the drifting, drifting. It relaxes you, but then it disarms you, as I say, with that saxophone freak out. 
It's a good tune, this. It's a song that you lose yourself in. Mm. It kind of drifts over you, but not in a not in a bad way. In that it it is trying to bring you down softly. Mm-hmm. You're coming in for a soft landing. So yeah, the, it, it works as a as a way to start to take you down off the high that you've had and bring bring you down. It it, it does work to do that. Apparently. <laughs> You're right, it does. It's very good. Shall we go on? Okay, so the next song is Higher Than the Sun. A dub symphony in two parts. Indeed. Featuring Jar Wobble. If you're not aware of Jar Wobble's work, he played the bass. Well, he's most famous for playing the bass in Public Image Limited. Um, John Lydon's band after the Sex Pistols did some good work, did some not so good work. Yeah, it's a great bass line, though. It is. uh, He's he's a great bassist, Jar Wobble. Yeah, he is. And this song is essentially... It's a love song to ecstasy. <laughs> yes, it is. It, I mean that that's what it is. It's a it's a pian. It's an absolute love letter to the high that he's had. So it's Andrew Weatherall's reimagining of Higher Than the Sun. Okay, so let's let's talk mm-hmm. musically for a second. That's what it is. And we've spoken on our very first clash, second ever episode, when we went through all things must pass. We both said how surprising it was for George Harrison to put two versions of the same song on one album. And I think we have to say here that it's an interesting choice. Um, I'm more than okay with it because I think it sounds really good. It's different enough to offer me something else, but it's still clearly higher than the sun. So it says it's in two parts, two acts, if you like. At the start of that second act, when the sort of harpsichord part comes in, it's that's really disarming. You don't expect that to come in. Yeah, it is. But it's good. It's really mellow. It's just lovely. You talked from I'm Coming Down about how they're setting you up for that gentle come down. This, it's got that slight bit of suspense, sinisterness. It's not a word, sinister, you know what I mean. It's a slight sinister feel to it, mm-hmm. but it's still very gentle. Big fan, big fan of this. Yeah. And I mean, if you weren't if you weren't convinced that this was related to ecstasy, the run out message, <laughs> I get mine for fifteens. <laughs> so if you if you're not aware, that refers to Bobby got a discount on his ease, so he wasn't paying twenty; he was getting them for fifteen. <laughs> it could have been referring to trainers. <laughs> you don't know. Yeah, down the market, fifteen quid. There you go, book discount down the wholesale. I mean, if he's paying 15s for his trainees, then he's getting a pair of nicks. <laughs> not even high-tech Silver Shadow. No, he's not even getting high-tech. <laughs> Fucking shite nicks. And nicks the ones that were like, they tried to nick the Adidas Go Faster stripes, but there's about 25 stripes down the side. I can't remember because there were also the ones that like had the Jarg Nike bubble, which was just plastic. I think I might have had a pair of them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Reebok hexagons were shit. Not as bad as Reebok pump, though. <laughs> I swear Reebok pumps were invented because someone watched Back to the Future 2 and said, ooh, self-tying shoes. What a great idea. Can we do that? No, we can put a little fucking inflatable button in them. It's just shite. Where the fuck are my self-tying traps? Do you remember Puma's response to Reebok pump? The Puma disc. Yeah, that you twisted. Oh, I fucking <laughs> broke it. Ah, oh, these are ruined forever. <laughs> I just want a pair of traps that I don't have to tie myself. 
and a jacket that dries me as well. You know, yeah. <laughs> it can keep that shit fucking psychedelic plastic cap though. That was wank. Yeah, but I was fine with the hoverboard. Yeah, absolutely. Even the little kitty one. That's ground by me. Yeah. Because what winds me up is like, now all hoverboards exist. No, they don't, they're not hoverboards. They're just fucking shit segways. <laughs> they, they've got, yeah. literally got wheels on them. They're not hovering. They're on wheels. There, there is no, there is no hover. <laughs> they, they are just bored. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we may have digressed. It ain't coming out of the show. It's staying in. <laughs> no, this is the best. <laughs> this is the, this is the good stuff. <laughs> Uh, Shall we go on to Shine Like Stars? Yeah, I think we should. Okay, Shine Like Stars is the last song on the album, and it's a beautifully gentle, soft lullaby. Um, That's exactly what I've written. Of course, I've written it because we have a... Yeah, it is is a lullaby. (laughs) The hive mind has worked again. (laughs) It is a lullaby. I watch you sleep. You look so peaceful. You look so vulnerable. I feel scared for you. To me, you're so precious May you always shine like stars. It is a lullaby. The the keyboard synth part throughout it emphasizes that. It's a lovely end to the album. They have brought you down off your high. The party is over. Go out into the day. Gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Gorgeous is right. And I think with that, we should just end Forever. <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> Just end. <laughs> right, okay. So the album, it was really very well received in the vast majority of places, not Rolling Stone. So Simon Reynolds in Spin found the record to be totally mind-blowing. And he said the best songs were almost unclassifiable. And as you mentioned, Stephen Erlewine from All Music described it as an album that transcends its time and influence. Can I read some more from his review, please? Yes, certainly. Because I think he sums this album up perfectly. He said, also, there's little chance this record will be as revolutionary to first-time listeners, but after its initial spin, the genius in its constitution will become apparent. And it's that attention to detail that makes Screamadelica an album that transcends time and influence. Nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. There's another review that I want to quote. Stuart Bailey in the NME, he said that it was playful and extreme, sexy and sensuous. It's wise in the ways of rock, law, and happy to snuggle close to the cutting edge of club culture. Screamadelica will be recognised as a benchmark for these times, and the wee boys and copycats will tremble in their pants. I mean, I don't know what he means by that last statement, but I think he's absolutely nailed it with the uh, benchmark for these times line. Yeah, he, he he nailed everything, but the landing he he's over he over rotated and he splashed. He went wee boys with his landing. <laughs> he's done a whoopsie in the pool. Has anyone ever done that in the Olympic diving or synchronized swimming? Just an accidental shot. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure Greg Laganis probably did. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I'm leaving that there. <laughs> Shall we see what Nobby McGee had to say? Yeah, let's hear. Very little indeed. He, in fact, he didn't write a review of the album at all. He did rate it as a neither, which will, you may recall from a few weeks ago 
What that means is it may impress once or twice with consistent craft or an arresting track or two, and then it won't. I, for one, am absolutely delighted that he does not like this album. Yes, because it confirms that he knows fuck all. Yes, indeed. And with that, shall we talk about the legacy? Okay, so yes, let's um, let's go into the legacy of the album. I mean, quite rightly, it's seen as a classic, and we've spoken in rapturous terms about it. We've already talked about the influence it had in the industry, as we said last week with the Mondays, that Orbital, Underworld, Left Field, Chemical Brothers, Fatboy Slim, Daft Punk even. You could argue no Screamer Delica, none of those acts come to prominence. It's it's interesting that you you reference Daft Punk as well because I forget which member of the band, but certainly it was Guy Manuel Dom and Cristo, and I quite deliberately referenced them. But you please go and mention the quote. <laughs> <laughs> well, he he directly references Screamer Delica as a a keystone album that led to them doing what they did. Yeah. So it's an interview with Mix Mag, and he said that he also said that it was the album that put everything together in terms of genre which is a lovely, lovely way of putting mm-hmm. it. But it, yeah, exactly. It, the influence of this album. I talked last week that Pills, Thrills and Belly Aches was the high point of the Manchester Acid House scene. And we've just spoken about this album, which came out a year later as being this influential thing. To me, this took things further. Mm-hmm. This, as I said about Hide in the Sun, this influenced and created what was next to come and there was good and bad with that i've just highlighted a lot of the good acts there was a lot of shit that came with it too so you know a lot of the euro dance that came out in the mid 90s you could also say sprung out of things like screamer delica so fair play all right i'm not going to be completely revisionist about it but even so culturally that stuff was massive huge and so uh, yeah sorry no no good no go on finish your point i think i just did i lost my train of thought (laughs) Okay. Okay. Staying in. <laughs> so, Screamer Delica, as the Stone Roses, the Monday's album, it allowed indie boys to dance. And I think, I think what you particularly wouldn't see, particularly if Screamer Delica doesn't exist, is you wouldn't have the dance tent at a festival. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have those after-hours areas. So after the bands have been on. Yeah. You go to Arcadia, you go to, and we're, we're talking particularly about Glastonbury here. You wouldn't have those areas where you go on and have the dance night out. Yeah. And that fuse, the fusion between the two leads to those things happening. 100%. It's the next stepping stone in that evolution from mm-hmm. what started, well, to be fair, what started in Chicago in the mid 80s to it becoming the cultural touchstone for a generation. And you're absolutely right. This allowed indie boys to dance, and we've never stopped. No, like we we are fortunate in that we weren't indie boys of the mid '80s. So if we were, we if we were of the mid, we both have a fondness for shoe games, though. Let's not go too hard. No, we do, we do, we do have a, a fondness for shoe games. But but like, if we were indie boys of the mid '80s, then we might be Smiths fans. Ooh. Yeah. And the Smiths fans, you know, they're they're not they're not known for their dancing. <laughs> we were fortunate to come later mm-hmm. and be able to again. We we've we've talked about how important the 
collaboration between Noel Gallagher and the Chemical Brothers was. Noel Gallagher would never, never have collaborated with the Chemical Brothers had Screamadelica not happened. The links between the two disparate elements of music would never have happened. They would have been set against each other. 100% agree with you. The only point I'd like to make, and I am jumping ahead slightly, is that Screamadelica would never have happened if Pills, Thrills and Belly Aches hadn't have been made. Indeed. So Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's that's... Yeah, it's the pet sound Sergeant Pepper's argument again, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay, back to legacy. So for Primal Scream themselves, it made them. It did make them, and whilst it was their commercial high point in terms of sales, four of their next five albums were certified gold in the UK. The two straight afterwards, so Give Out but Don't Give Up and Vanishing Point, were both reached number two in the UK chart. Exterminator reached number three. So. It established them as a mainstay of the British music scene for... I mean, Exterminator is a... It's a divisive old album. <laughs> well, Exterminator is is often talked about as the counterpoint to Screamadelica. That Screamadelica was in the aftermath of the second summer of love and the euphoric feeling that came with, well, E, <laughs> and everything that was around that scene. Mm-hmm. Exterminator is the is the downside of that. It's the angry... It's got a fucking hard edge to it. It's got a very hard edge to it, yeah. And if you don't, if you don't like it, if you don't get it, then it's it's a tough old listen. I love Exterminator. I think it's brilliant. Look... And I know you do as well. I'm a huge... Like, the reason I mention it is because I am aware of someone that we both know that listens to the album for the first time and will not listen to Primal Scream again because it was their first introduction to him. I just went... Fuck, I want nothing to do with them. Yeah. Anyway, we're not talking about Exterminator. I like Exterminator, but it is a much more challenging listen than Scream and Delicate. That's, mm-hmm. that's fine. So as well as what it did for Primal Scream, it fucking made Creation Records. Oh, Christ, yeah. I don't care what Alan McGee might want to say. It fucking made Creation Records. It allowed them that commercial freedom to go and sign Oasis three years later and make them the biggest band in the world. And actually, I think it was quite fitting, therefore, that the very last album to be released on Creation before they folded was a Primal Scream album, was Exterminator, because it was the epitaph that the label most deserved, and it was the band that, Mm -hmm. to me, more than Oasis, defined Creation Records, because it said, no Scream of Delica, no Oasis. That's my opinion. Not musically, but... Do you know what I mean? Well, well, just just the for the having the the success to be able to sign exactly someone exactly like would would the Gallagher's had have signed to Creation had you know had Primal Scream not had the success with Scream had they had they not been able to sign other bands like Ride and mm-hmm. all the other sort of contemporaries at the time yeah, exactly um, probably not no exactly so. A very, very important legacy for this album, I think it's fair to say. Mm -hmm. I have nothing more to say on the legacy. No, so I suppose the the next place for us to go is to talk about best song, worst song. It is. Do you want me to go first? I think you should, yeah. Okay. Both choices have been really tough for me. I'm going to go with my best song first. Okay. There's four or five I could choose. Moving on up. 
come together, loaded, higher than the sum, are all phenomenal pieces of music. I'm not sure I've had a tougher choice than this for best song. I'm going to go higher than the sun because of what I said when we went through the track. It it was ahead of its time. It, to me, more than any other track on this album, influenced what was to come. It's a magnificent piece of music. I adore everything about it. I adore both versions of it, but I'm going with the, the Orb-produced version. That's my best track on this album. My worst track, my least favourite, Oh God, this is a really tough choice again because I love every track on the album. I've got to pick one. And so I will, with regret, go with Shine Like Stars. Not for any reason other than when I was listening to the album this time for researching The Clash, I enjoyed it slightly less than the other tracks on the album. And that's the worst thing I can say about it. Mm -hmm. So... (laughs) Sorry, guys. I, I, I really struggle with both of these choices. What about you? Okay, I'll start with Worst Song. And again, I struggled. I think I will probably come down on Slip Inside This House. And it's it's only, and it is quite similar to you in that when I was listening to it back, it's not that I didn't like the song. It's just that there were other songs I liked more. Mm-hmm. That's that's the worst thing I can say about it. I feel obliged to say that I am both agog and aghast, but I understand it's a <laughs> tough choice. You've got to choose yeah. one. Coming coming to best song, I mean, it's fucking hard. That mm-hmm. I adore moving on up. I really like don't fight it, feel it. I love loaded. It's absolutely brilliant. But I think if I'm the song that I always come back to. I will always return to um, is come together. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's joyous. It's a rhapsody. It's, you know, there's like, if you're having, if you're having a shite day hearing Jesse Jackson Mm. saying, lifting your soul and your spirit to the sky is just a beautiful thing. Um, Yeah. That come together is, for me, the best song on the album, but it's it is by just a tiny amount that I could I could pick so many others on this album. It's it's a great album. It is a great album, and I chose a different song. But you know, as we said when we're going yeah. through Thriller, it's a it's a nuts. It's there's so many. It's a nuts crotchet. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, I mean, I fear we may have given the game away slightly. <laughs> but it's probably time to get to scoring. <laughs> okay. All right. So it's my choice. So I'll go first on Mondays and last. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. So we've just talked lonely about Stream of Delica. Let's go back to last week. Let's go back to what we said about Pillstones and Belly Aches. I love this album. I, I actually think that it's become somewhat overlooked in the classic album lists. Yeah. As we said, when we went through the top Trump stuff that, it doesn't appear in the Rolling Stone lists. It's it's remembered for the singles. And yes, the, the three singles are the three best tracks on the album. I'm not going to deny that. But there's a lot more within. It's got a lot more to offer than I think it's given credit for nowadays. There's a lot more than just three songs here. You've got God's Cop. You've got Donovan. Mm-hmm. You've got Harmony to close things off. There are... Well, there's one track I didn't particularly like. It's on the wrong album. And there's Holiday, which passed me by. 
So it's very far from perfect, but the rhythm sections alone, I mean, this album deserves high praise because they drive everything forward with a groove and a swagger that typifies that Manchester scene. And as we've said, there are songs and one song in particular that, that is definitive of that era and of that scene. And that deserves recognition. So I'm going to give it a seven out of 10. It's a really, really good album. I like it a great deal. It is far from perfect, but it's well worth a seven out of 10. And I think that might be even being a little bit harsh to it, but that's where I've come down. Fair enough. So for me, it's high points are very high. Um, <laughs> no, no pun intended there. And as you say, that it's not just the singles. There are there are good moments as you as you reference God's Cop. Even even Bob's your uncle, you know, mm-hmm. whilst it's it's not the most subtle song in the world, <laughs> it has there is there is good stuff going on there. Dennis and Lois has some good stuff as well. However, Grandbag's funeral is a fucking mess. <laughs> and I'm not like, I can't like, I'm not getting past that. And, you know, we, as you say, holiday, it's a bit Mondays by numbers. Donovan, the first half of that song, not keen on the second half's fucking great. So I think you're right. I think it's, it's a good album. So it's a seven out of 10. Yeah. It's a good album. Okay. That's fine. We agree. Screaming Delica then. Over to you. So, Scream Adelica. So, it starts strong. It continues incredibly strong. It lifts you to some absolute fucking peaks. And it ends well. There isn't really a huge amount of weakness in this album. But I am loath to give anything a 10 out of 10. <sighs> so, I'm going to come down on it as a 9.5 out of 10. because. <laughs> Because I'm a shit house and I won't give anything a ten out of ten. You are a shit house. You've just said there's no low points on it. It's absolutely brilliant. Okay, so you've got nine and a half. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna show my hand first. I, I am giving this a ten out of ten, and this is my second ten out of ten. But this is more than deserving. Okay, <laughs> so I'm giving it ten. Now I'm gonna talk about what I think about the album. It's one of my favorite albums of all time. I think that's probably been pretty clear over the last eighty minutes or so. I think the way it is somehow manages to be at the same time utterly definitive and evocative of its time, as well as being completely ahead of its time and also timeless, is, as you said, it's alchemy. It's magic. It's magic. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, I have no other explanation. It's magic. Four or five of the songs on this album are all time classics. It's a work of genius by Primal Scream, by Andrew Weatherall, by The Orb, and by Jimmy Miller. Everyone involved in this album deserves all of the plaudits. Sorry, Kev, it's a 10 out of 10. There's no weak points on the album. I debated whether to give Pet Sounds 10 out of 10. There's been no debate here. This is a perfect album. It's 10 out of 10. It's our highest scoring album ever at 19 and a half out of 20. So it is emphatically the winner this week. And we've both said that Pills, Thrills and Bellyaches is good. 14 a good score, but mm-hmm. it's not even close this week. No, there's there's just so much going on in this album. It's it's great. And for those um, people who are listening who are vinyl fans, if you do not have a copy of the album, 
I know that Primal Scream have recently released a picture disc version of it that has um, the cover on the disc, and it is gorgeous. Um, I am strongly considering it. So I have a copy of this on vinyl, which I bought uh, four or five years ago. Uh, It's not the picture disc. Even if you're not going to get the picture disc, the album sounds phenomenal on vinyl. Get it on vinyl. Mm -hmm. They've also released this year, because obviously, as I said, it's 30 years ago coming up that the album was released. Fender have released a Screamadelica Stratocaster. I've seen it, yeah. Looks so gorgeous. Oh my God, it's wonderful. I want to make love to it. I'm so tempted to waste 1,200 quid of my money on that thing and just hang it on the wall and never play it. I'm not going to. Just look at it. Look at it and stroke it. Don't ever, like Spinal Tap, don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Don't even look at it. (laughs) I mean, you are a massive shithouse. Sorry. Like, oh, I'm loaded. It's fuck off. If it's worth 10 out of 10, it's worth 10 out of 10. End of story. No. I'm I'm still holding back my 10 out of 10. Jesus Christ. So better than Pet Sounds, 19 and a half. Yep. Deserved. Yeah, it is. All right. What are we doing next? Okay. So we are going to continue the Britpop theme. And I had a long think about what I was going to do for this. So I've decided, and I'm not sure how you'll feel about it, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to review 1995's Elastica by Elastica. Versus coming up by Suede <laughs> from 1996. So I wouldn't, have, I'd have gone Dogman Star, but oh, I'm all kinds of happy about that. Uh, there's an obvious winner for me, but I'm not going to say it today. <laughs> and I already know which, which one is your favorite. <laughs> yeah, because it's an album I've loved for a long time. And I hope you're coming around to my way of thinking because it's fucking brilliant. So, yes, this is this is what we'll do. Um, I, I think. It is very much at the nexus of the um, the Britpop, Britpop movement, really. It definitely is at the nexus of the Britpop movement. And it would actually, ironically enough, would also fit into the beef theme as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Okay, so I'm going to be taking us through Elastica. And yes, I will be taking us through Coming Up by Suede. I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm delighted <laughs> by the way that's fallen. Excellent stuff. Well done. Okay. All right, so go on. How can you know Twitter stuff and all that? So yes, um, as you know, we are massive fans of font chat, and um, <laughs> if you're not aware, that Twitter has recently changed its font, so you can you can check out our new font at Clash Album. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well done. Bravo. If I was wearing a cap, I would doff it. <laughs> My apologies. Carry on. If you are a fan of quality, well-curated um, content, then you can check out our Insta, Clash Album. Or if you are resolutely old school, you can always send us an electronic mail at clashalbum at gmail.com. Boom. Although, to be fair, we do also post our well-curated, excellent content from Instagram on Twitter too. So, you know, people can also see it there. They can, but in Insta is the um, better curated. It is, and uh, it's also less of a cesspool of human scum and villainy. And better font. <laughs> Stop talking about fonts. I love a font chat. <laughs> and, and as Twitter has been a buzz this week about fonts, it has indeed. <laughs> I could, I couldn't ignore the big font. For, chat. What Twitter has been, and for the second time in this clash, I'm going to say a gast and a gog about fonts. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> okay, 
All right, uh, you may love a font chat, but I'm sure our listeners don't, so I'm going to call an end to this silliness. Indeed. Okay. Thanks for listening. Get involved. Leave us a review. Leave us a rating. Tell your mates. Share it. All that stuff. We really, really, really appreciate you listening to us. Christ knows why you are, but there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So for next week, I'm going to be taking us through Elastica by Elastica. And in a couple of weeks, Kev, you're going to go through... I will be going through Coming Up by Suede. Boom, there you go. All right, until then, I've been Tim. I've been Kev. And we'll see you next time. Take care, ta-da. All right, take care, ta-da.